development is there's so many layers that you need to understand. You need to understand acquisitions. You need to be kind of a part-time lawyer. You need to understand accounting, construction, architecture, engineering, city planning. There's all these like very sophisticated that you could spend your entire life learning about. Listen, everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Hey, Tanner, welcome to the Brenneman Blueprint. Hey, thanks for having me. So now I know your story a little bit, you know, from following each other on Twitter, but I think for those people who don't know, let's let's just start out with your background and how you got into real estate development. Yeah, so I... Uh... Originally from St. George, Utah, um, went to, got my associate's degree at kind of a junior college in St. George and then moved up to Salt Lake City in 2016. And I had the plan of, you know, becoming a doctor because I didn't know what else to do. And um, the only real career advice I got from my mom was, you know, you're not allowed to be a teacher because teachers don't make enough money. And she was a single school teacher and so wanted to do something that made more money. So I thought I'd go to school for, you know, as long as I could. Um, while I was there, I read a book on real estate and I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is the best business ever. You can buy a house for, you know, $50,000 down and have someone pay off a mortgage for you. It's the best business model I've ever heard of. So, uh, I thought, you know, I will do that once I'm a rich doctor, like that sounds great, but kind of got the bug. And the more I learned about it, the more I liked it after we're after college, I actually dropped that uh, kind of dropped out of the medical school path, finished my bachelor's degree in like two semesters. And some of my buddies from college were starting off as realtors. So got started there. Um, knew I kind of wanted to be more on the investment side. So I was sourcing deals and kind of listing deals on like a house flipping side. Um, and so that was a good way to learn because I saw a lot of the ways that people messed up on deals. Um, and then that kind of gave me the confidence to go out and find my first fix and flip. Um, and I think, you know, fixing and flipping homes is a pretty good way to get started. I got kind of lucky with my first capital partner. He gave me a hundred percent LTC loan and, um, just had a lot of faith in me then branched off on my own. And here we are now. So nice. Yeah. Love it. I guess. So then sort of that, the first deal, I guess that you did, what sort of was going through your mind when you were doing that? What made you sort of. I guess at that point, think think you could do it. A lot of my story has a lot of just kind of maybe dumb confidence, but you know, like I've seen other people do it and it can't be that hard. So I'm sure I can figure it out. You know, I was just looking on Zillow, you know, like I did a lot of the time for other clients and I saw this house in a neighborhood that I really liked and it was listed as 1400 square feet. And I was looking through the pictures. I was like, there's, there's no way this is way bigger than that. Uh, it turns out that it was a for sale by owner and they had only listed 14 of the 2,800 square feet. So I saw that and I was like, I should really buy this. And I texted a couple people. I was like, do you know anyone who wants to give me a full loan, like all of cost? And they were like, uh, this guy might. And I talked to him and he would one phone call and he was like, sure, that sounds great. And we did that deal and it worked out pretty well. And then what kind of interest rate was that? And then how long did you have it? Let's walk through that first deal. So I bought this first deal in... 2019. Um, I think it was August of 2019. I had no business getting a hundred percent loan to cost loan by any sense, but, uh, it was three points and 12% interest. So he, he got a good return. Um, went through that deal, learned a lot, really didn't know very much about construction at all. I was going to sell that home, but I listed it in March of 2020, kind of the three week stretch where you couldn't sell a home. And then you know, I love the I love the house, love the neighborhood. So I actually refinanced and moved in there. Um, and we had enough spread to where I didn't need to bring any 
cash in. I almost bought the home for, you know, no money down outside of, you know, the three origination points and some of the interest that I was paying. And then for context, this is in Salt Lake City, right? Yep. Salt Lake City. Yeah, that's no, that's great. And then I think the next the next move you made was so you had flipped. How many houses did you flip? Just that one? And then I think it was 12 houses. Um, I've kind of gotten, I've, there's been some overlap where I've started doing some development deals, but I kind of get suckered back into flipping houses every once in a while. And then I have a good relationship with a hard money lender here. And, you know, when he needs to foreclose on some of his borrowers, I'll come in and, you know, take over a halfway finished project. In my career, I've done. 16 or something like that we can verify that later if we need to yeah no i'm just just roughly speaking because i think i know you made a a pivot and this all this all happened i mean i think pretty quickly where if your first one was in 2019 2020 and then i know you started working for a developer as well like doing larger deals at some point one was that that was a couple years after that yeah so that was in 2020 so a lot of the story kind of overlaps um the first yeah, we should probably back up. The first uh, kind of commercial deal that I ever did, um, along the way, I, I really wanted to learn again about the investing side, but I just had no one, like none of my family is in real estate development. So I was like, I, I don't know who to talk to on these. Uh, one of my residential clients introduced me to a real estate developer and my pitch to him was, hey, I don't know anything about anything, but what I do know is I can, you know, sit in my house or sit in my office and call as many people as you want. And so I would cold, cold call these people. Uh, they were coming out of a 1031 exchange. They were like, hey, can you help us find something? It's like, I guess I can give it my best, but I don't know. Again, I don't know what I'm doing here. And just started cold calling, you know, apartment owners between 16 and I think 50 units, somewhere around there. And I was just calling these people and my pitch was, hey, do you want to sell your apartments? And they were like, no. I was like, all right. And then call the next person. It was like a Friday afternoon at like five o'clock. I was making, I was like, oh, I'll just make a couple more calls. Call a guy and it's like, hey, I wanted to see if you wanted to sell your apartments. He's like, you know, I actually do. I'm like, oh, all right. I don't know what to do from here. <laughs> um, so I texted him. I was like, what do I, you know, what do you need? And so we needed a T12 and an OPEX statement. Uh, we did that deal. Um, that was awesome. I got to watch those guys buy a deal. I don't know if I can say how much it was, but they ended up uh, refinancing a million bucks cash back. So I got to watch them do that entire deal. But while I was, you know, cold calling these owners, I was like, I really need to figure out how exactly to do this because I know I'm not optimizing it. And I was at a residential brokerage, but the principal or the owner of the franchise there, he was a real estate developer. And so I was talking to him. He was like, why don't you come work for me? I was like, all right, that sounds great. So worked for him for a little over a year and kind of learned the nuts and bolts of you know, actual real estate development rather than just cold calling people and buying off of a price per door that made no sense. Yeah. And, and so when you took this job, or I guess, were you, what were you, was it a salary kind of thing or how did it work getting, cause working with uh, the guy who was running the, the brokerage office on his development deals? Yeah. So I was kind of an acquisitions and brokerage guy was kind of my title. Um, so it was still real estate broker. I was still doing some deals on the side, flipping houses. Candidly didn't make that much money as like a commercial broker. I did some, uh, sold a 30 acre like land development just north of Utah Lake. Um, so that was cool. Got to watch. That was a mess of a deal, but, um, it was good, good learning experience. Uh, sold some self storage, sold some more apartments. And then I kind of watched him do a lot of his real estate development deals and the way he structures deals was fascinating and you know, it's a great learning experience. So what would you say was one of the biggest things you learned then working for this developer? I think really, uh, how real estate development occurs, you know, you kind of walk, walk around these neighborhoods and you're just assume these buildings have been there forever, but a developer had to go in and work with the city to get that done. And previously, I kind of thought that you just went in there with a set of building plans and you argued with the city until you got something built. But it turns out there's an actual process, you know, planning commission, city staff, city council. And so that's, that was kind of the main takeaway was, you know, learning the actual fundamentals of how these deals actually work. And I also didn't really... I didn't really understand how the syndication model worked. Um, you know, I assumed people were either super rich or they were getting, you know, expensive hundred percent loan to cost loans. I didn't realize that 
you know, these equity joint ventures or syndications or funds or waterfalls. Like I didn't understand any of that. Um, so it was a good, good kind of fundamental learning experience. And what, how was he raising equity through syndication? He was kind of independently wealthy and he had some good lenders as well. And then he, he'd structured his deals really, uh, very interestingly. So like if he did an office deal, he would bring in, you know, an end user to own the actual office building. He would, you know, partner with the end user on one of them. They'd bring in some equity and they would own their actual building. And then he'd have no basis on the other two office buildings or something a little bit more creative. It wasn't necessarily like a, you know, 6% waterfall or a 6% preferred return. And then a 70, 30. Um, so it was a little bit more, I guess, back of the napkin, that type of structure versus like an institutional deal structure. I had lunch with somebody last week here in Austin and he, he was a broker and does development. And he, it was a similar story because I, he did an $18 million deal and I had asked him, how did you do such a large deal? Like that's a lot of equity. And it was, yeah, it was in phases where it was, you know, he had enough to build maybe four or $5 million of property or six and just, you know, did it three or four different, five different rounds. So that's interesting. I think a real estate development has the opportunity to have a lot of creative, um, creative structures to it. You know, when you're buying, let's say apartments, there's really not that many ways to skin the cat, so to speak. You kind of buy it, you have a, you have your equity, you have your debt, you buy it, improve it and either refinance or sell it. But with development, you know, you can partner with end users, you can, um, kind of phase off your deals. You can chop them up and sell them to different users. There's lots of interesting stuff you can do. And so, so you learn sort of the the basics of real estate development and kind of just this, the steps, the process, and then about raising money. I mean, setting up partnerships, anything else come to mind that was like sort of transformational in terms of stuff you had learned? I think acquisitions was another big thing. That's kind of more of my background. Like I've never been afraid to pick up the phone and call some sellers and try and work some deals out. Um, and he was, he was a master at that. You know, he was a commercial broker, land development guy. And a lot of the deals, almost all of the deals that he did were, you know, self, uh, self-generated. And so that was, that was really, really good to see. Yeah. Some of the smarter real estate folks I know, it's basically like they buy directly the same way. And then, you know, the brokers are for selling, not for buying basically is what they would, <laughs> what they would say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that sub-institutional development space is super interesting on a land side because, you know, a $20 million project might only be four or five million bucks in land or maybe even less. And so you kind of are at that point where sellers really don't want to pay a commission, but they might step over a 6% commission to get you a 15, 20% discount. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity because there's not a lot of sophistication in that side. You know, the brain damage of doing a 200 acre development is very similar to, you know, a 20 acre development. It's certainly not 10 times more difficult. I've definitely learned too. And how, how did you then make the pivot where you're working for, uh, or I guess to bring us to more current day. Now you've done three projects on, on your own three developments. Is that correct? I was kind of getting really busy with the fix and flips and then, uh, just kind of decided to go separate ways, still on great terms with my old boss. He's the man. Um, but, I, I left in, uh, I think it was February of 21. And I told a friend of mine, his name's Jordan. He's taught me a bunch about real estate. I was like, I want to do, you know, I want to be my own developer. Like I want to do a ground up project. And so he had a fully entitled 12 unit townhome project that had all the plans. It was ready to be permitted. And he was like, if you want to buy this, you can, because I want to put this money into a different deal that I'm doing. So I said, that sounds great. I met some guys, they called off of a sign of one of my listings and they said, Hey, we're a little bit worried about inflation. Um, we want to put some money to work. I was like, well, I have a couple deals that you can look at and none of them really made sense. And I called him. I said, Hey, I've got this deal. I've never done a ground up project before, but I saw my old boss do one and I know I can make this happen. I'll align incentives. I'll do whatever it takes. I had the mindset of, you know, I wasn't going to go back to school and get a master's degree. Like I would much rather just lose, you know, 75 grand doing deals like of my own money. Don't want to lose any investor money, of course. But I just said, I can, I know I can figure this out. 
I'll co-invest $100,000 with you guys. And, you know, I'll actually subordinate my equity to yours as well as subordinating, subordinating it to a 15% preferred return uh, because we were originally going to do 12 for sale condos. It was right near a neighborhood that I had sold some townhomes in as a realtor like two years previously. And so I was like, I know I can get this done, but I need someone to, you know, kind of believe in me. And they were like, you know, this sounds great. Um, and then they actually sent me the operating statement. I sent it to my attorney. He was like, hey, there's no mention of this, uh, you know, 15% preferred return and like your equity is not subordinated. I was like, oh, that's okay. I'll give him a call and see what's going on. And I called him and he's like, you know, you're putting up a lot of money. You're not charging any fees. Like we can just split it 50, 50. And I was like, that is amazing. Like, and so love those guys. Um, really appreciate the faith that they had in me. That's great. They did that. And how much equity did they put in to the deal? I think it was 750,000. And then we deferred my developer fee in as equity. I think it was a $4.3 million total project cost. And this was kind of back in the day where you could get 75, 80% loan to cost from a local credit union. And it was, it was nice. Yeah. Your, and your interest rate was, you know, 4% or something like that. Four and three quarter. It was awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, that, that'll help. So nice. That's yeah, that's great. And that's, yeah, I like the kind of some of the lessons here that people can pull out where, you know, real estate is not, you know, it's can be complicated, but it's not, you know, um, brain surgery here or anything. And you, you look around and you see other people doing it that are, you know, they're smart enough, but they're not, you know, wildly smarter than maybe me and you when we're looking at other people doing this. And I think that's a great lesson. Just getting those first deals done, just whatever it took. Where whatever you were, it takes. Yeah. yeah, where you're willing to go no fees and a 15% pref, but then, you know, you have a successful deal in your track record. And then now when you go to the lender, yeah, we, we were successful with that loan, paid it off. Everyone's happy. Same thing with the investors, uh, with the city. So, I mean, that I think those are some really really great lessons. want to make a note of something that was really fun on this deal. I kind of set aside an additional $50,000 and I was like, like, this is my tuition right here. I know there's $50,000 worth of stuff that I don't know. And I want to make sure that, you know, my investors are protected. And we originally closed on a seller finance deal because Jordan needed to be paid off and the credit union took about two months longer than they said they would. So we closed and then we were closing in our construction loan. And I get an email from the title company and they're like, your cash to close is $235,000. I was like, that's not right. You know, we were supposed to bring in enough equity that, you know, we close on the construction loan and we're good to go. So there was a miscalculation on a previous bid that the credit union used. And so that was probably the most stressful day of my life. I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do here. And looking back, there's so many people I could have called, um, but figured it out with the credit union. They just increased the loan amount. Um, so the numbers were at, you know still the same, but the uh, previous loan was lower than they had said. And we got it figured out in like three days because my partner was going to Europe for a month and blew through my $40,000 uh, or 40 of my $50,000, just me bringing in that extra capital. Um, so that was you know a lot of fun. And I, I think you asked uh, in the email previously, like, would you recommend that's how someone starts? No way. Go <laughs> go do an existing deal. It's so much easier. And, you know, development, I think development is a lot of labor of love. Um, Sam Zell says half of your returns in development come from, you know, watching something come out of the ground. And I 100% agree. I, I do love a lot of the aspects of development. It is not easier than uh, buying just existing assets. That's interesting. It's because it's funny. I have, uh, I guess I've only done one development deal and then the other 40 or whatever have been acquisitions. But when I'm doing them, I'm thinking, man, it'd be nice to be doing development. And it's the reason is because of the timeline to raise the equity where you, on that one, uh, I mean, I guess that you needed all your equity up front still to buy on that deal, correct? And then when you're talking correct. about the refinance, that was actually a surprise where you guys thought you had all your equity in. Then the bank, uh, the credit union goes, actually, we need another 230000 to put the loan on. And then that was equity you guys didn't plan on. That that was just uh, the story, correct? Yeah. So it was, uh, we closed on the seller finance and then I guess the refinance was into the construction loan. So I was anticipating we had enough proceeds from the seller finance note to be good, I guess, on the construction loan. But yeah, turns cash out we so, yep. yeah, because then I guess what I was uh, getting at is, you know, when I do these acquisitions, I'm like, man, this is it's competitive. You know, there's other people, 
you know, bidding on it. And for whatever reason in my head, I'm thinking, oh, development, it's there's less people looking at the site and then you're only buying the land to start. So I don't need so you're buying a $10 million deal. You don't need all three million day one. Like you're just buying the land. Um, so you can take mm -hmm. it down with less money, presumably. But then when you guys did this deal, you had all the equity in day one. So then that didn't really that idea in my head doesn't really hold up. It's still you still need all the money. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if you do phase those projects, I was kind of told it hurts your IRR, but call the capital day one just because, you know, you when you're dealing with non-institutional money guys, you know, stuff comes up. And if you don't have that money in your account, you, you can't really count on it, no matter what documents are signed. That's just my personal advice for people out there. Not legal advice, of course. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good, that's a good thought. And yeah, right. People, they can spend it or invest it in something else. And then it's, then it's gone. Interesting. And then I, your next deal was a, and actually the, the 12 unit, then that was, you guys sold off every townhome or that that was a rental or what was the yeah so market started to shift um there's kind of a lot of fear out there in you know 2022 and we decided to refinance into a freddie mac sbl loan um in early 2023 what did you think of that program you know it was a lot better than the construction loan process so i, I would say it was good um i think agency is kind of the way to go on basically any multifamily deal i don't know if you disagree but uh you know the non-recourse couple of years interest only competitive rates it was much more competitive than a, a bank loan so um, I kind of think agency is the way to go. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the only downside is it's more work potentially on the, you know, on, to, to get the loan closed and with, with most banks. I mean, it's well worth it. So, and then once you've done yeah. a few where the most, the number one financing source for me is Freddie SBL, where I've done probably over 25 of those at this point. And that was every time it gets easier because it's like, well, we already know like this is the form or this is how the process where I've done a couple deals where I've sold and then the buyer's assuming my loan and they're kind of kicking and screaming along the way. Like, this is so much work. Why are you kidding? You need more stuff. But once you've done it, then you're like, you're ready for it. Um, and to your point, it's a streamlined process. It's non-recourse. You, you know, It's sort of like a like sometimes with these banks, it's a little bit hard to hard to know what am I getting like that's could it change. This is almost this is very formulaic. Like here's the spread based on my LTV, and then I want to do interest only. So then they add this many basis points, or I want to do a, di a different prepay structure, and then it's it's just all you know add and subtract uh, from the rate based on what you pick. So yeah, I've really liked the program. Yeah. And I, I also think locking your rated application is huge. Um, I, I hate uncertainty. You know, even if rates went down in that time, I would have just been happy just because they couldn't have gone up. Um, and so, yeah, I like the program. Yeah. And it doesn't cost anything to, uh, there's no, you know, with the, the larger, so the conventional size Fannie, uh, Freddie loans, you, you're putting up a two or 3% deposit to lock your rate. But with Freddie SBL, they're they're just holding your rate for for nothing essentially. You give them a small deposit, but that's not even for holding the rate. That's for the third parties. So yeah, that's that's a great yep. point, Tanner. And then the next deal was a sixteen unit. Let's let's hear about that. Yeah. So I uh, back in my days of you know cold calling apartment owners and asking them if they wanted to sell. Uh, in twenty nineteen, I had a guy say, "Yeah, I want to sell these apartments, but you know now is not the right time." And if anyone ever did that, I you know, call them every quarter, you know, a couple times a year and just say, Hey, you know, you said you wanted to sell a while ago. Do you still want to sell? Um, so I kept calling him, kept saying no. One day I call and his wife answered and he had passed away. He was an older guy, um, had passed away two weeks prior. I said, I'm so sorry. I'll call back next week. And I called back. I said, Hey, you know, I talked to him over the years and he had said that he wanted to sell. You can, you guys can take advantage of the step up in basis and we'd be happy to help you along the way as much as we can. And so I called my partner from the deal that I sold the 32 units on and he had just refinanced, you know, two weeks before, um, big cash out refinance. And they, his previous investors wanted to, you know, put that money into a new deal. And so we were going through, uh, we got the deal under contract. We were going to close all cash. And this was in June of 22. And this was, you know, market was, you know, losing their minds at this point. You know, stock market had been cut in half, basically. No one knew where rates were going to be. And 
when we went under contract, we were like, we'll just close all cash and we don't have to worry about it. One of the major investors of the, I think it was $4.1 million, uh, I think 2.6 of that decommitted, you know, a week before closing. And so we went to the seller and we said, hey, you can have our $25,000 earnest money deposit or you can work with us right now. Because not a lot of people are super excited about buying apartments these days. And we said, hey, we'll do, you know, three years seller finance with an option to extend 5% interest only. How does that sound? They were like, that sounds good. And so they worked with us. And uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of not retrading on deals. I think it's, you know, kind of the baseline of what you should do. And a lot of buyers don't do that. And we went through and there were some things that we probably could have asked for, but I kind of expected to have those repairs beforehand. So I think they were kind of expecting us to beat them up on pricing after the inspection, but we said, Hey, we're good to go. Um, and so when that came around, I think they were a lot more willing to work with us than, you know, if we had asked for a 25% price reduction or a 20% price reduction for no basis. And what was the purchase price of this deal? I think it was 4.3 million. This you really had built your investor network then if you, uh, the plan was to close all cash and then you could raise that kind of money. It was nice because my partner had just refinanced on the 32 unit that I had sold him. Um, and so he had a bunch of cash coming out of that refinance and they all wanted to redeploy it. And so the timing just worked out really well. I don't think I could have raised, you know, 4.3 million bucks on my own at that point, but, um, I guess we'll never know. Yeah. And that's okay. Cause the lion's share of it was coming from him. And then that, that's oh, yeah. a one phone call. Like, do you have it? And then he says, yes. And then you're rolling. Okay. Nice. Yep. And why were you guys going to close all cash? Just the timing? His kind of school of thought. And I, I kind of agree with this to a certain extent, uh, you know, your big risk in real estate is, are those balloon payments. And when you're taking on bridge debt, um, you know, you really don't want to be caught with your pants down on a, you know, difficult credit environment. And so his kind of thought process was, you know, we buy it all cash. It's a lot easier. Like you don't have to deal with the banks and it's a lot safer. You know, your downside is you just don't refinance and you can continue to, you know, ride the waves of the economy. When you don't have debt, you, it's pretty difficult to get foreclosed on unless you don't pay your taxes. Um, and so that was kind of the, the thought process on that. Interesting. And what was the business plan? Uh, the business plan, it, all the tenants were month to month and it was near the University of Utah. And so they were all, you know, probably going to leave anyways. And so we just said, hey, we'll give you two months to go find somewhere else. And so we actually vacated the apartments and um, started construction on the entire thing rather than just doing one unit at a time. And this was a, was a renovation deal then, not development. Yes, yeah, got, got renovation. And then how in how long did the renovation take? Because then you guys missed the whole, essentially like school year of leasing, or how did you guys time it? Uh, permitting on that one took a long time. You know, permitting basically a, a development probably would have been easier. Um, it was a 1960s build. We were got renovating the entire thing. Permitting took like six months, and so then construction took you know nine ish months. We're just wrapping up now. Okay, yeah, you'll be able to hit the, you know, hit it for next school year. Not is there, or are people, yep. when are they looking for university of Utah already in like the fall winter for the following? Yeah. So it's pretty close to downtown. So you, you'll have a mix of students and also just, you know, normal tenants. I, I try and lease all of my units around May, uh, May, June, July, just because you know, that turnover. Um, but you can incentivize with a couple months free rent or, you know, other people didn't time their leases quite as well. So they might start in March. Um, that's typically how I want to do it in Utah because it's so cold during the winter. No one, no one really likes to do any apartment shopping. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I've noticed that in these cold places. How have you, um, I guess on both of these deals, then you the, the broker developer that you used to work for, he was your partner on these or just on this one? No, that was actually a guy, uh, his name's Ned. Um, I sold him a 32 unit, so I, I didn't work for him. Um, he was just a guy that I knew that bought apartments. Um, and so now we're partners on, you know, that deal. And then we actually wrote an offer on another 16 unit, uh, just last week. Nice. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to pull out is it's interesting how these, the, everything really compounds. I mean, the relationships, the experience where you see a deal, then you're able to go, okay, well I had 
brokered this 32 unit to a guy who might be interested in working together on this. And prior deal, you're able to parlay a brokerage client looking for something into a partnership. I mean, it's very interesting. But then I guess for when I was asking, yeah, what would you recommend for people starting out? I think the brokerage path, I mean, that would you recommend that to people if they want to eventually get on the principal side? Yeah, I think the very best way that you can do it is by working for someone else, whether I think preferably a developer or you know an investment manager. But outside of that, I think a broker is a really good path um, just because you get to see kind of the entire deal cycle. And, you know, if you're a good broker, you know, sell some land to someone, you watch them build it. And if you're a good investment sales guy, you sell it for them on the backside and you get to see kind of step by step. I think another good path is, you know, capital markets broker as well, because you get to see how these people structure their deals, um, you know, how much leverage they're taking, kind of their overall thoughts on the deal itself. So those are kind of the two two paths I would recommend the most. Interesting. And, and then I guess for, um, yeah, I thought actually you were going to say brokerage for sure when I asked that. So that's interesting to hear. I think, uh, one of the problems when brokers become investment managers is good brokers always look at the deals from the seller side. Like how can I maximize proceeds? And that's what you want as a seller, as a broker who thinks about it that way. But as a buyer, you know, you should really be looking at all the downsides and all of the ways that you could lose money. And so I think that is the one caveat I would say is if you are a good investment sales broker on the listing side, you need to make sure that you're looking at stuff from the buyer's perspective. And I think that's why I was a mediocre broker is because I'd look at these deals and I'd say, you're never going to sell it for that. Like you can't sell it for a four cap. And then two other brokers would come in and they'd sell it for a 3.8 a couple of weeks later. And so just make sure you're looking for it on the on the buyer's side. That's uh, That's very interesting. Yeah. Some of the yeah, the brokers that I bought the mo- a lot of deals with, they they seem to be the most realistic, you know. And so then that's why we've done a lot of deals because then it's their their deals are more, you know, they're not they're not they're still stretching, but not to kind of in your example to a, like a new a new height we haven't saw before. Nothing better than working with a good broker, though. Um, like on my retail development, I think the broker that I work with is one of the best brokers I've ever ever met. Really understands everything, who the tenants are how much they're willing to pay, what kind of space they're looking for. So if you find a good broker, treat them right, pay them more than they deserve and, you know, always take care of them. And so that was that your next deal, the the retail deal or what's this? I've kind of found some success with working with brokers around my age because a lot of the, you know, older brokers and developers, they kind of, they've been working together for 30 years. So why would they send me a deal? Um, but they also don't really respect the young hustlers out there. And so, you know, we have some money that we can deploy and, you know, we treat the brokers well. And so that's my pitch is, hey, rather than sending it to this, you know, crusty old guy who doesn't really care about you, bring it to me. I'll take better care of you and you'll have way more fun. So uh, he sent me this site, um, said a gas station was looking to buy a corner. Um, but if I wanted to buy the whole thing, I could sell the corner to the gas station and then sell a couple pads to some other users. And I had seen my old boss do a similar deal where you kind of entitle it, uh, put in the horizontal infrastructure and sell it to the different users. Single family home builders or single family home developers will do this a lot where they you know, get the deals entitled and then they put in the horizontal infrastructure and they'll sell it to either you know, end home buyers or custom home builders or production home builders. Was familiar with that idea, kind of understood the costs. Um, and had worked with a little bit of retail as a broker. Um, when I was working brokerage, I didn't really specialize nearly as much as I should have. And so I got a lot of exposure into retail, office, industrial, multifamily, land, single family, homeland. Um, and so I felt comfortable doing this. Do, have you guys built any of the buildings or it's you're, you're selling off just strictly the land once it's uh, Subdivide has utilities running through it or? Yeah, so we'll probably start a horizontal infrastructure in, I would assume, maybe March or April. Um, and then we'll sell one of the individual pads. We'll probably build two retail buildings and either partner on a gas station or sell it to a gas station. So you went from all the way from flipping houses to, you know, developing, you know, land for commercial uses here. Like, what would you recommend for people or advice for people that want to start doing bigger deals like you did? What what are some of the things that you did looking back on? They're like, oh, that was critical that that happened. You know, I've been super, super lucky with a lot of the 
friends and partnerships that I've made along the way. And so I think you need to have someone in your corner who, you know, you can pay them or they can just be nice to you. Like they've been nice to me. Um, but you really need someone who understands all aspects of commercial real estate because development is, there's so many layers that you need to understand. You need to understand acquisitions. You need to be kind of a part-time lawyer. You need to understand accounting, uh, bank debt, you need to understand construction, architecture, engineering, city planning. There's all these like very sophisticated that you could spend your entire life learning about. And so you either need to know enough to be dangerous and then work with consultants, or you need to have someone in your corner who is an expert. So if you're going to do bigger deals, make sure you have someone, uh, whether it's a partner, a co-GP, a consultant, just someone who really knows what they're doing in that specific uh, aspect of the deal. Cause it's really hard to put those all together. And for you, that was the person that you had uh, brokered the 32 unit to, or who, who was that? Who has that been in your life or multiple people? Uh, there's been multiple people in my life. I think, um, you know, I could probably point to each uh, category and name someone who's really specific, like on the entitlement side, uh, on my podcast, I interviewed her, her name's Haley Pratt. I've learned pretty much everything that I know outside of like a baseline education about city planning and zoning, just because it's, it's not something that I ever grew up with and I'd never studied ever. And so it had been a complete learning curve for me. And she's helped me a, a lot along the way and she's just enjoys it. So she helps me and I help her with the capital market stuff. And it's just a good, good relationship. And so I think there's been those aspects in you know every part of my life. Nice. And then and is she's uh, also a developer then, or yeah, they build uh, apartments in Salt Lake City. Okay, nice. Yeah, that's yeah, it's great to find those people. Just just wanted to flush that all the way out because a lot of you know it could have also could have been an attorney or someone else, but then that's uh, you know great where they're they're in the the trenches doing every part of it too. I love my attorney. He does charge me a lot of money though. Yeah, that's that's true. And then, what's your strategy today? Are you you're sticking? Uh, like now, you're you kind of were doing some commercial, some multifamily. What's sort of the the plan going forward? I've kind of been a jack of all trades, kind of my entire career. Like a little bit of brokerage, a little bit of hard money lending, a little bit of fix and flip. Some, you know, obviously all different asset classes. Um, so I want to become an expert in industrial. Uh, I like the industrial deals that I've worked on. Um, I think there's a lot of tailwinds and we can get into that if you want, specifically around kind of the smaller kind of class B industrial space. And so that's the next project that I'm doing is a 20,000 square foot or 18,000 square foot uh, class B industrial development. I just think there's a lot of tailwinds. I really align with a lot of the tenants there. And overall, I just like the asset class. And then, yeah, well, let's go through the tailwind. So what, what do you like about it? You know, I think industrial has kind of been the darling of real estate of industrial and multifamily since maybe 2016. And the reason that I like industrial or the reason I think a lot of people have liked industrial is because you have this kind of shift away from, you know, traditional retail, like going in to buy your shoes. You know, you don't do that anymore. You kind of order everything from Amazon for the most part, or, you know, last minute you'll go to Walmart or Target or something like that. But any retail sales generally come online for a lot of these products. And so... I think that is a huge tailwind in itself. You know, I've heard for every billion dollars in uh, retail sales, we need another hundred thousand square feet of, or uh, another million square feet of industrial space. And so I think we're kind of undersupplied in that demographic. And then also uh, kind of bringing back a lot of US manufacturing is another one. And then I think the biggest bull case for kind of my product type is I've obviously got experience in multifamily. Um, a lot of these kind of existing industrial developments are in kind of the urban core. And at least in Utah, legislative uh, pressures are, you know, getting to cities where they say, hey, you need to start building more apartments. Like it's way too expensive um, and we're not going to be able to, you know, sustain a lot of our residents here. And so the cities are kind of faced with, do I put these, you know, apartments, do I rezone these old kind of single family neighborhoods that, you know, on the, if they're lower income, we're kind of gentrifying those areas. And if they're upper income, we're going to have a bunch of really rich people who are pissed off and who are also kind of, you know, our, our voters, or should I redevelop this kind of old industrial park? And they are almost exclusively going towards that industrial park because 
you know, you don't really have a lot of neighbors. You have really good infrastructure. Um, back in the day, those buildings were built kind of on the outskirts of town, but now they're kind of in the actual urban cores. And, you know, some of those places are in opportunity zones. They're in qualify uh, QCTs. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, ground up development off of those old kind of decrepit industrial buildings. So you actually have a diminishing amount of supply. Um, I can point to a couple areas in Salt Lake City where they've just bulldozed a bunch of, you know, 12 foot clear height, old industrial buildings to make way for these massive urban mixed use projects. So you're kind of buying multifamily land while you're paying for industrial building prices. And so they also make as kind of a covered land play. Nice. And then on the development side, what are you guys uh, building these two then? Um, like what, what metric do you look at on the, on the uh, class B industrial? We have kind of a yield on costs that we try and hit. And the way that I really look at investment management or development is I try and do as little future predicting as possible. Because if you would have told me that, you know, the Fed funds rate went up four or 500 basis points in a year, I don't think I would have predicted that. Um, and so I don't forecast interest rates. I try not to, or I also just don't forecast any rent growth because rents could go up, rents could go down. So I kind of look at what that deal would look like today with today's construction costs, today's interest rates, and you know today's rents on the backside, figure out a yield that I'm comfortable with and that my investors are comfortable with, and then we do the project. And then I tend to think that the market's gonna go up over time. I don't know if that's one year, two year, three year, but I'm pretty sure over 20 years or 10 years that the market's going to go up at least a little bit. And so that's kind of the real only forecasting that I like to do is I think it's going to go up. I just don't know when, you know, we have supply constrictions, so it's probably going to work in our favor. And what yield on cost are you guys targeting then? It really depends on the asset um, or really depends on the location. You know, if I could get a really, really great deal at, you know, five and a half percent unlevered yield on cost, but I'm buying, you know, a fantastic location with future multifamily upside, then I think I would be okay with that. But if I'm building, you know, a ground up industrial deal that I plan on holding or I plan on selling, um, we probably want to be closer to a seven, which is really difficult to do right now. But on my newest project, it was actually an old office condo. And so we're replatting the site and all of the infrastructure is already in place. So you know, on previous bids that I've gotten, that saves about four, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars, and so I don't. It's pretty difficult to go find you know an acre or two acres in Salt Lake City and build it to a seven. But this one is a little bit. It's it's perfect for a guy like me who has entitlement experience and knows how to you know do kind of the weird stuff that comes involved with that, like replatting sites, dissolving HOAs. Um, amending CCNRs. I think it's a good deal for someone like me. I think the big boys kind of wouldn't waste their time on it. And I don't think a lot of, you know, smaller guys or guys my size have the sophistication to do that type of process. Even on a, like, let's say this deal is going to be like on the edge of town. So like on whatever the next path of development is, like even somewhere like that, it's hard to build to like a seven yield on cost today. Yeah. And the way I kind of look at development is I look at the underlying land value a lot more. You know, you can make a lot of money doing suburban land development um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. You can build to, you know, a seven, maybe even 8% yield on cost. Some of these guys on Twitter claim to build to a nine or a 10, but it's because their underlying land value is like a dollar a square foot. I'm of the opinion that buildings don't go up in value, but land does. And so when you're buying those buildings or you're building those buildings, you know, you're really just building to a mediocre yield that you can't really expect any appreciation on. I really admire the, uh, or I really like the supply constrictions that Salt Lake City has. And so I tend to think it's a great market because, you know, they're running out of land compared to a lot of these other sites where, you know, they could build for the next 200 years, just sprawling. And even, and then when you say Salt Lake City, are you including like Ogden and Provo in that, or you're referring to Salt Lake City? You Kind of my deal strike zone is from Provo to kind of just south of Ogden. There's one family who owns just a ton of industrial stuff up in uh, Ogden, and they got the land for free back from the government in like the 50s. So it's kind of hard to compete with those guys all the way up there. But I tell people anywhere along I-15 from Provo to south Ogden is what I'm interested in. Okay. And even in that big of a 
uh, that large of amount of geography, it feels like you're running, they're running out of space where they're, I guess, yeah, constrained by mountains and the, and, or lakes on all sides. Kind of to give some perspective, we've got mountains on the east side from Provo to Ogden, um, the Wasatch Mountains. And then just north of Salt Lake City is the Great Salt Lake, obviously a huge lake. Um, so you've got constrictions to the east and then also constrictions to the west. Then you have the Ochre Mountains in Salt Lake County that are to the west. We've got a little bit of room to run, but we're kind of slowly or I guess rapidly running out of uh, room to develop that way as well. Well, then why don't we let's let's hear about your podcast. I think the theme is very uh, interesting, but want to hear you describe it. So, yeah. So I mentioned earlier that I kind of uh, decided that I wasn't going to go get a master's degree and I would rather, you know, lose money on real estate deals. Um, and I've, you know, lost quite a bit of money in pursuit costs or, you know, just not really knowing what I was doing and kind of paying the dumb tax. At the time, I wish that there was, you know, a podcast or a platform that I could go learn a lot of these things from, but it just didn't really exist. You know, there was a lot of stuff on how to uh, create financial freedom by buying apartments. Um, but there wasn't anything about, you know, building a really big real estate operating company or a private equity company and, or kind of, I call it like real estate 201, you know? Um, and, and now there are a lot more, um, podcasts, but I think they've kind of all emerged over the last two years or so, um, two, three years. And so I just wanted to create something that was similar to that. And then also I've had so many people, again, not charge me for any of this advice. So I wanted to give, you know, you know, the me and somewhere else in the U S kind of the opportunity to learn from the people that I've learned from, but also just deliver it for free. I don't think there's anything wrong with selling courses, but I just, I want to give all of that information for free because so many people have done that for me. And then what, and have you taken any courses or anything? I've taken a couple over the years, just kind of randomly. Um, nothing notable that I would really write home about. Um, and that was kind of also the reason is I had talked to some of these people who had purchased these course sell or these courses on like, you know, how to become a millionaire through buying multifamily real estate. And a lot of it, frankly, just was not good advice or it wasn't really advice at all. It was more about like, oh, you have, you need a mindset and you need to believe in yourself. That's all great. But like, how do you actually implement the process? Like, that's great that you bought a, an apartment complex for 10 million and sold it for 20. How did you do it? Like, where did you get the money from? How do you have these conversations? And I think a lot of it is how do you work with these attorneys? You know, you're, you know that you're supposed to call a securities attorney to do these deals. What do you say to them? How do you make sure that you're actually, you know, doing the right deal? versus, you know, just going off of what your attorney says, because we work with all these consultants, but we also need to make sure that, you know, they're doing what we want them to do. And so that's, that's kind of the thought process is like, here's every step along the way. Here's how you do it. Um, and here's what you need to know. Yeah. Well, I had meant to ask you that before. And have you, have you done any mentorships or anything? I had a coach from Mike Ferry organization who this was kind of in between me Brokering. I actually, but totally that's forgot brokerage. About this. Just I'm to be clear, that's a up. brokerage coach. I think, right? Or, he is a brokerage coach, but the coach that I had was actually a retail developer in New York State, and he was a great guy. I learned a lot from him, um, but I learned a lot more, you know, out in the field doing deals um, and talking to other brokers and developers in Salt Lake City and looking at their projects. Nice. Well, yeah, I wanted to. I had meant to ask you that earlier as we were talking about kind of how you had learned just where I think that's a great message for people to hear where, you know, I've talked to a lot of people or quite a few where they're just stuck in this education mode. And it's funny, both my parents were teachers. I know your mom was a teacher. So, you know, no, nothing against yeah. education, but they where they're stuck in this, where they're still developing their investor avatar or need to figure out their marketing email sequences. And they ask me like, what are mine? And I'm like, I don't know. I never really did any of that. I just started doing deals and then I, you know, people hear about it and they want to invest and, you know, it just started with a duplex, you know, where it's like, it's not, you know, I didn't need to take this mentorship and, but it's cause I had, I just started small with my own money. Um, but so I thought that was, you know, great how, how you did it. And I think it's important to hear cause I, a lot of people are, uh, loading up on the courses and paid mentorships and stuff. And then they don't really, take any action and, and 
because I think a lot of because they also they're trying to think they need to start at like kind of a high level, like buying like a ten million dollar deal, and it's you can make pretty good money just. Um, I mean, on those house, you know, buying a, buying a rental house or a duplex. I mean, you can make good money doing that, and then you're learning the steps in the real world. To your point, or you're actually uh, you're you're really learning it, not just reading about it. Yeah, and I also think um, you know I. I tend to have a bias towards action. Um, sometimes that hurts me. Sometimes it helps me. Um, but it, it does, it is disappointing when you talk to these people and they have these morning routines where they wake up at five and they do a cold sauna or a cold, cold tub and then a sauna. And then they don't do anything for the rest of the day. And it's like, what, what was the point of that? You know, like you have to go out there, you have to be willing to fail. And that's probably my greatest strength is just being willing to fail because and I, I, I should caveat that being personally willing to fail. Um, you know, I would never put my investors in harm's way or along my learning curve without a very good risk adjusted return. But I just think that you, at the end of the day, all that motivational stuff is great, but you've got to go out there and you've got to take a chance and you've got to bet on yourself. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, let's, let's go out on that Tanner. So, uh, people want to get in touch with you. How, how should they do that? Honestly, just shoot me an email. I'm always happy to carve out 15 minutes to talk to people, um, help them along the way and, you know, follow me on Twitter, send me an email. Always happy to, happy to help. Awesome. Thanks Tanner. Appreciate it. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.